morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are tuning into this episode of Focus on Facts. I am Eric Sussman, and glad to be reconnecting with you once again to chat about the American Rescue Plan, the cleverly captioned $1.9 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, COVID relief bill that was passed last week to great fanfare, at least by the Democrats, since it was a completely non-bipartisan affair. What I'd like to discuss with you are its key provisions, my thoughts about it, and how I see the impact of such a large stimulus bill at this particular juncture, and perhaps more importantly, the deficit spending and borrowing that will ultimately follow it. But meanwhile, let's talk briefly about some of the other stories from last week's news, which included everything from Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head, and perhaps the most significant story, the Oprah Winfrey interview with Meghan and Harry. It must be, since something like 17 million people tuned into it, which blows my mind, since I can barely get 60 students to tune into a Zoom class. And while I have to be honest that I was not one of the 17 million, I will also be fully transparent and disclose that I have binge-watched The Crown, Down Abbey, and The Great, about Catherine the Great, not the UK royalty, so I suppose I am just as obsessed and enthralled as the rest of us about soap operas, extraordinary wealth, and family dysfunction, some sort of entertainment trivecta. And I suppose that has to be it, that somehow a family that seems to have it all, wealth, power, and glamour, beneath that veneer, they are just as dysfunctional as any family or the rest of us. In fact, if any of my focus on uh, fact friends out there think you come from a completely normal, functional family where everyone talks to each other and gets along, would you please ping me because I think you must be some sort of unicorn and I would love to interview you for this podcast. Anyhow, one story you may have missed in all the hullabaloo was uh, the news about the $69 million sale of an original piece of digital art, something known as an NFT or non-fungible token, as they are called, which was, to my knowledge, the first sale of its kind, this digital collage by a gentleman named Mark Winkleman. And I'm not sure that Monet, Rembrandt, or Andy Warhol have anything to worry about, but I am kind of curious to see whether this is really a thing or just a fad, another example of the extraordinary wealth in the hands of a few. Perhaps people spending their wealth from everything from Bitcoin, Tesla, or GameStop trading for all I know, and this is sort of just a destination for that wealth. We shall see. Uh, I don't think Clear Capital will be pivoting anytime soon from uh, value-add multifamily investing to uh, digital art, but I would like to add digital art to my Hanukkah wish list after Jewish space lasers and that new Tesla. There is one other topic that many of you have been asking me to talk about. It's probably the second most requested topic after Bitcoin, and that is SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, which are really all the rage on Wall Street right now. I will talk about those in my next podcast, but it'll probably be in the context of a larger discussion regarding financial innovation and asset bubbles. So stay tuned for that. Now, before I get into and discuss our topic du jour, the COVID relief bill, I did want to give a 
special shout out to a group of UCLA students, four of whom are Anderson MBA candidates and which won the silver shovel case competition against our crosstown rivals USC about a week and a half ago. What's remarkable is not the fact that we won because we've done it before and yes, we are going to do it again, but this was the first time that any team from any business school in this competition, which has been going on for decades, fielded an all-female team, and I really could not have been prouder of them and the project they presented. As we just celebrated International Women's Day, it just seemed especially appropriate that I give them that shout out. I recognize that the commercial real estate industry still has a ways to go in terms of inclusiveness, and I hope to see similar teams in the future. So let's go Bruins. All right, so let's turn to the topic at hand, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, the so-called American Rescue Plan. First thing I want to do is to put it in context. This is the third COVID relief bill, though it is the largest. The first from last March was $1.7 trillion, and the second, $915 billion from this past December. So in total, we are talking about $4.6 trillion in relief, which will require the issuance of a boatload of new debt and will definitely test investor appetite for it. More on that in a little bit. Now, I know some of you, my good friends on the right, are asking, why now? Why so much money? We are on the cusp of economic recovery. And if President Biden is remotely right, we'll be open again by July 4th. Okay, now look, I think that's a great soundbite that we're going to be somehow be independent on Independence Day or something like that. And I think July 4th is ridiculous, overly optimistic. But look, certainly by fall, we should be on our way to economic recovery and and mostly open. Now, others of you on the flip side of the political aisle are saying to yourselves, Are you kidding me? Those jerks could not include a $15 federal minimum wage in this bill. Are you kidding me? As far as the first argument against a bill this large, I do hear you. Although I think we need to take a closer look at exactly how this huge pot of money is being earmarked, and we will do that momentarily. I will add that those often making this argument, and I have heard it from many, they tend to be part of the haves as opposed to the have-nots. And I do know for a fact that there are a lot of people hurting right now. They're suffering from hunger or food insecurity. They can't make their rent payments or their mortgage payments. And I suppose I would rather err on providing more aid to those in need than Less. Now, I know not everyone agrees with that perspective, but that's my view. Regarding the failure to agree on a $15 minimum wage, a federal minimum wage, that goes back to certain parliamentarian rules of the U.S. sentence and how they got this bill passed so damn fast. I imagine many of us just figured they could ram this bill through because the Democrats control both the executive and legislative branches, even if Kamala Harris would have to cast some kind of deciding vote if there were a tiebreaker. The Democrats did want to pass the legislation by March 14th, since that was when the emergency federal unemployment benefits as part of the last 
stimulus bill from December were set to expire. So time was of the essence for the Democrats, and they did succeed in that uh, meeting that time deadline. But if the Democrats had treated this bill as your normal run-of-the-mill legislation, it would have been DOA or doomed on arrival because of the filibuster rules, these arcane parliamentary procedures, which would have required 60 votes to get it passed. And let's be realistic, that's a complete non-starter in this screwed-up political environment we now find ourselves in. Talking about rules that need to go, in my opinion. The filibuster is one of them. And someone needs to do a reality TV show, Extreme Makeover, Congress edition. So if any of you are in that field, uh, sign me up. I will view that if I didn't view the Megan and Harry interview. The Democrats, for their part, recognizing political reality, used a special procedure, the budget reconciliation, which is filibuster proof and therefore requires a simple majority. But there's a catch. The so-called Byrd Rule, named after the late and former West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd, which restricts what provisions can be included in budget reconciliation legislation. It basically prohibits provisions that are considered extraneous to the budget. This should not be confused with the Sussman rule, which says get your butt to class on time and be prepared. (laughs) Anyhow, the unorthodox thing about this bird rule is that it requires that a third party, an unelected official, a so-called Senate parliamentarian, review the legislation and make judgment calls about provisions that fall outside taxing or spending. And that is why the $15 federal minimum wage went bye-bye. So the bill passed, sadly, on strict party lines. And again, that's a topic for another day. But let's talk about where all the money is set to go. So this is the point in the podcast where you want to get your calculators, slide rules, and intoxicants ready because there is a lot of cheddar here. The largest piece, $410 billion, is going to those $1,400 payments to individuals who earn less than $75,000 a year or to couples earning $150,000 a year or less. Now, we can debate about the amounts and thresholds until the cows come home, but it is what it is. I mean, part of the problem I've always had with how our federal government sets these sorts of thresholds on a national level is that we all recognize and appreciate that $75,000 or $150,000 is not the same thing in Los Angeles as it is in, let's say, pick a typical rural community in the Midwest. That's not to be critical or judgmental against anything in in the Midwest, God knows, but it's just the way we all realize it is. And why they don't sort of index or tie these things to the differing uh, income and wealth levels in different zip codes. Not to get off topic, but I know that housing and urban development subsidizes rents differently depending on one zip code. As part of the Section 8 program, for example, I talked about a couple of episodes ago. So it's not like the federal government fails to recognize or appreciate this economic reality. 
But those are the thresholds they set, and I imagine there are a few of you listening to this podcast that will fall within those uh, figures and receive the $1,400 checks if you haven't done so already. But there's $410 billion, or about a quarter of the bill. The second largest piece, $360 billion, is earmarked for state and local government aid. The reality is that countless state and local governments are in a world of economic hurt as a result of COVID and declines in revenues. I mean, New York City has lost or will lose something like nine to $10 billion in tax revenue as a result of the pandemic, but they're not alone. For example, Nashville in deep red Tennessee, again, which has been growing like crazy, Nashville approved a 34% property tax hike last year to deal with its budget woes. So, Again, this is an economic reality that uh, uh, the federal government is going to be helping out our state and local governments to the tune of $360 billion. So between the $410 billion of direct payments and the state and local government aid, there's $770 billion right there. Next is about $250 billion to that uh, $300 a month of extra unemployment assistance that I discussed earlier, and that extends these benefits through September 6th. So I want you all to mark your calendars for September 6th because hopefully, let's all hope and pray that the economy is really in recovery mode by then and there is no need for further benefits and extension of federal unemployment aid. Let's all hope for that. The rest of the bill, because now we're at over a trillion dollars, is really allocated to a bunch of different areas. So let me just summarize those very quickly. Uh, one, expanded child tax credits, child care tax credits, earned income credits, $143 billion. Two, education, $176 billion. Three, COVID-19 specific aid, $123 billion. Four, additional health care costs, $105 billion. And then there's a smattering of other costs across the board, and, and they include, just for example, $40 billion that's specifically delineated for rental housing, including rental assistance. So for those of you who are, who are landlords, and that would certainly include uh, Clear Capital, that will certainly benefit us, will benefit our tenants principally, and then, of course, that'll benefit benefit us. And those of you who rent units to financially challenge or strapped tenants, hopefully you will see some uh, some benefit yourselves from uh, this rental assistance. So that is the, the whole uh, kit and caboodle. And again, that is a heck of a lot of, of, uh, of cheddar. There's one other tidbit in the bill I thought I should mention that we should all keep an eye on, and that has to do with loan forgiveness. As you may know, many Democrats are talking about forgiving student loans or other forms of debt. This bill makes loan forgiveness, which is normally taxable, it makes it tax-free through 2025. Now, whether loan forgiveness actually becomes a thing or not remains to be seen, whether President Biden tries to do something via executive order, whether Congress is going to pass some legislation that forgives debt, uh, we'll have to see what happens there. It's premature to discuss, but stay tuned for that. All right. So how do we pay for the extraordinary largesse of this $1.9 trillion bill, no matter how we feel about it? 
You can't exactly put this on your Costco Visa card, although a 2% rebate on that amount would be pretty extraordinary. The answer, of course, is a tidal wave of new Treasury debt. A net new supply of $3 trillion this year, up from $1.7 trillion last year and $900 billion of net new debt in 2019. So yeah, a lot more borrowing. This in part explains the sharp increase we have all witnessed in interest rates since the start of the year. For example, yields on 10-year treasuries are up from less than 1% at the start of the year to over 1.6% today, which may not sound that much, of course, on uh, absolute terms and with a historic perspective isn't that much, but I'm sorry, a 60% increase in rates in a few months is something to take note of. And that has also caused uh, mortgage rates to go up, which you can appreciate will absolutely have an effect on economic growth, etc. And let's not kid ourselves, higher taxes are still on the table, though it remains how much in what form. Elizabeth Warren continues to pound the table for her wealth tax, although I think and actually hope this is a non-starter for reasons we'll probably discuss at some other point in time. But rest assured, higher taxes are eventually coming to a Form 1040 near you. And when that happens, uh, we will be here to chat about it. The, The biggest question for a lot of us is how much debt is too much debt? And it's really both an academic and empirical question without a clear-cut answer. After all, debt in of itself is not a bad thing. And the more income you have coming in, the greater economic growth or prosperity you experience, the more debt you can take on. That's true for each of us, our households, as well as our federal government. So, you know, high or even increasing levels of debt are not necessarily negatives in the broad context or sense. At the same time, I think we all also intuitively understand that excessive debt is problematic, so it's this sort of balancing act. I always use single-family homes as the easiest example to use when thinking about debt, since most of us have mortgages on our homes, and as much as 80% of the home's value may be encumbered by a first mortgage or maybe a second mortgage, and fortunately, we're able to meet our monthly obligations. Well, with the federal government, it's obviously just a, a bit different because they have this really cool and amazing printing press with some very special toner. And because this is not a single-family home where we can look at the amount of debt outstanding versus the value of the home and make some assessment, we just can't do that when we think about our federal government. And besides, some of you are thinking, are you kidding Professor Sussman, value of our federal government, those clowns are a liability. All right, well, humor aside, the federal government does own this monetary printing press and they do have the capacity to tax and there is value to what they do despite some of our personal views. So a more common way of measuring our debt levels is to compare them to our economic productivity or output gross domestic product, which hopefully kind of makes some sense. The Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, just released a new publication, The Budget and Economic Outlook 2021 to 2031, which I can assure you is is no match for the Da Vinci Code or 
some other book with a lot more sex appeal. But it does indicate that during 2020, the U.S. national debt held by the public, which now exceeds $21 trillion, rose to 100% of GDP for the very first time since the end of World War II. Right, let me just say that one more time so we're clear. Last year, the U.S. national debt held by the public, and again, that figure is now $21 trillion and rising, rose to 100% of our GDP for the first time in 70 plus years. Now, low interest rates can help in as much as it costs a lot less in interest to service that debt. For example, despite the fact that our public debt more than doubled between 2010 and 2020, it was $9 trillion-ish in 2010, the interest incurred on that debt grew only in I should probably have quotation marks around only, 26% because of historically low interest rates. And the CBO predicts, rightly or wrongly, we shall see, but they predict that U.S. debt to GDP will hold at between 101 to 107% of GDP through 2031. Again, that absolutely remains to be seen. A lot of folks point to Japan as the poster child of excessive debt, as their public debt is actually 200%, over 200% of their GDP. And if any of us follow Japan's economy, they have suffered from very low economic growth for decades. And candidly, that is my biggest concern. Look, The United States' dominance in strategic sectors has been waning in everything from semiconductors to batteries to robotics to synthetic biology to pharmacology to fill in the blank with any number of industries. And, you know, who is eating our lunch? Well, I think you all probably know the answer to that one, but here's a hint. It begins with a C and ends with an A, and it ain't Canada. Oh, and by the way, they own more of our national debt than anyone else. All right, so obviously China. And that's my concern. The opportunity costs of servicing all that debt, the more than half a trillion dollars that our federal government is paying each year, a figure that's going to rise in interest to service our debt, is half a trillion dollars that we can't spend on those other things. Bill Maher talked about this issue during his last episode on on Sunday night in his New Rules segment, and I suggest that you check it out. And while I don't always agree with his views and perspectives, I thought he hit the nail on the proverbial head with his comments about China, that as much as we don't want to be like them for any number of very good reasons, we actually need to be more like them, at least when it comes to investments in infrastructure and industry, because they are eating not just our lunch, but our breakfast. I think that's the most important meal of the day, as I recall. But dinners and snacks, too. And so the reality is that all of this money that we are spending and going to be spending to service our debt is money that we can't spend elsewhere. And I think that is a significant issue because... 
Let's face it, China is not sitting still. They are investing in all of this industry. They are investing in infrastructure. They are building the Silk Road to connect Asia with Europe. And we are stuck in the mud, at least in some ways, and I am concerned about that. The other concern that I have is about inflation. Now, hopefully it makes intuitive sense that if you increase money supply to pay for things, including interest on our debt, the value of that money will decline. Basic economics 101 of demand and supply. And sure enough, the U.S. dollar index has declined some 10% over the past year. The U.S. dollar index is an index which uh, compares the U.S. dollar to a a basket of, of foreign currencies. Now, candidly, this drop has provided some foundational support and argument for Bitcoin. And of course, as I discussed in uh, my podcast about that, I remain skeptical of Bitcoin in the long term. I actually understand the arguments in favor of it because of the weakness and a question mark surrounding the U.S. dollar. Now, as far as broader inflation goes, it's really a mixed bag. And I see inflation in different categories. The reality is that the what I call the three A's, Amazon, automation, and artificial intelligence are resulting in deflation or certainly providing caps or ceilings on price increases. Not that I need to tout Amazon, but we've all seen those commercials. Ooh, look at that low price. But if you look at things that Amazon doesn't sell or that don't necessarily benefit from automation or artificial intelligence, prices seem to be going up. In fact, I read a Wall Street Journal article from last week that the price of used cars went up 17% last year, while grocery and booze prices were up about 5%. And when it comes to booze, I may be part of the cause of that issue, but that's for another day. But the real inflation that I see is in asset prices in everything from, yes, the stock market, the craze for SPACs, uh, home prices and real estate, and yes, Bitcoin. And where we see all of this liquidity, all of this increase in monetary supply, money on the sidelines, creating potential asset bubbles. Again, a topic for the next podcast. At last look, there is over $18 trillion in what is known as M1 money supply, for those of you who remember your macroeconomics. But look, for the rest of us, just think of it as fuel on the sidelines, which is awaiting investment potentially. And it not just provides foundational support for asset values, but perhaps values above their intrinsic worth. As I mentioned in my housing podcast, for those of you waiting for housing prices to decline or rents to drop further in the absence, again, of of COVID, you are waiting for Godot, in my opinion. It's just not going to happen. So I do think all of this stimulus will lead to inflated asset values for some time to come. Look, when I was in the third grade in the early 19th century, my favorite TV show, it really was, was The Six Million Dollar Man. Some of you may remember it. And for those of you who aren't old enough to remember it, check it out on YouTube. You will question my judgment when you do so. But I think if that show were redone somehow, Steve Austin, which was the show's protagonist, would have to be the six billion or perhaps the six trillion dollar man because of this this asset inflation. And I am really concerned about asset bubbles. However, 
Let me add one more comment before we say our goodbyes. And that is, I believe that wealth inequality is the single greatest threat to our constitutional republic. I do not understand or can't fathom how the United States as a democracy can last without a strong middle class, with a a much smaller gap between the haves and the have-nots. And again, for those of you who may have majored or taken some economics classes, you may remember something called the Gini coefficient, uh, which is named after an Italian economist, I believe 14th or 15th century. Anyways, he came up with a measure of, of looking at Uh, wealth inequality. In the United States, wealth inequality is at its highest levels ever. And that is a concern. So to the extent that the COVID relief bill, this American rescue plan, as again, they love to call it, to the extent that it helps in that regard, you can count me as a proponent of the new bill. Because to me, the first step to even the playing field and to decrease wealth inequality is to add a dose of empathy and compassion to our capitalist system, which I still think remains the best one out there. And so to the extent this $1.9 trillion ultimately helps in that regard, and again, the jury remains out on that, but I am optimistic that it will have that impact as we look back on it. And we'll have a chance to revisit that in in future months. But to the extent that the bill aids in leveling the playing field, I am in favor of it. And with that, thank you once again for tuning into this episode of Focus on Facts. I remain truly grateful for your kind words and support and look forward to reconnecting with you soon when we will talk about special purpose acquisition companies, financial innovation, and asset bubbles. So until then, take care, and I will connect with you soon.